Welcome to episode 5 of the Inclusion Initiative, a Jedi AAM podcast, a production of the Justice, Equity, Diversity, and Inclusion section of the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. Each month, this podcast will feature established leaders as well as a diverse group of members in the specialty of emergency medicine. In this episode, Dr. Kimberly Brown, current AAEM at-large board member, speaks with the chair-elect of the Women in Emergency Medicine section of AAEM and the host of the Women's Wisdom podcast, Dr. Molly Estes. Why don't you tell me first, like, a little bit about you? Like, where did you grow up? Like, where are you from? Tell me all about your background. Start me from little baby Molly. (laughs) Sure, sure, sure. So, a uh, little baby redheaded Molly. Um, so I mostly grew up in Victorville, California, which I would be extremely surprised if anybody on the recording actually knew where it was besides the gas stop halfway between Los Angeles and Vegas. Um, so it is a desert town in the high desert of Southern California. So for all y'all, um, yes, California has a desert. It's a very large one, actually. Um, it's not all just beaches and mountains and Hollywood stars. <laughs> so we grew up um, mostly in that area because it was in the mid-90s when we moved there. It was like the cheapest place to live and still be within commuting distance of industry. So I'm I'm the first physician in my family. My dad's a car mechanic. Um, my mom was a homemaker for years. And then Oh my gosh, I think my the first job I remember my mom having when me and my brothers were kind of older was working for Mervyn's. So if anybody remembers Mervyn's, um, that was like the pre-Coles, Coles uh, kind of a thing. So we grew up there. Um, I have three younger brothers. Um, one is a graphic designer. He does like global marketing stuff in LA. Um, One is an airplane engineer. So he works on small craft now out of Long Beach and the youngest a few years ago graduated nursing school. And so he does home health nursing um, out in Yucca Valley, another desert town. Hmm. Um, Obviously, as you can tell- I just figure you as a big sister for some reason. Oh yeah? It's like, I don't know, an only child or (laughs) like a little sister. Once you see me around my brothers, then it like I suddenly start to make more sense. It's like, oh, you've got that like whole hyper responsible mini mom thing going about you. Or maybe you just need to see me like around my residence too, because I tend to do it to them too. I I older sister my residence quite a bit. Nice. Um, so as you can probably tell, like I'm extremely close to my family. So I decided to do most of my schooling pretty close to home. Um, so I went about an hour away from home for undergrad and then an hour away from home in the other direction um, for medical school. I did medical school at Loma Linda University and then decided to branch out with my life and go to Northern California (laughs) for residency. Um, And then after finishing my residency and my fellowship at Stanford, decided to come back down to Southern California to be close to my family again. So I've been at Loma Linda University as faculty uh, for about six years now. I'm the cool auntie to two nieces and one nephew, which I just love. Let me tell you, there's nothing better than being the aunt and getting to get them all like excited and hopped up on sugar and then send them home. Like it is the greatest experience ever. (laughs) 
So, so yeah, those are some, those are some broad strokes about me. That. So uh, I like that you said that family is super important to you and that's clearly been like your heart. That's why you haven't really moved that far away from everyone. But um, what made you want to be a doctor? So that's a good, good question. And the only way that I've ever been able to describe it is that it is a childhood dream that came true. So if you, if you believe what my mom says, and I do believe my mother, um, since I was five years old, I started saying that I wanted to be a doctor. Mm-hmm. And I have no idea where that came from. Um, I do remember loving my pediatrician, but I can't really like link that memory back to Dr. Dale. Dr. Dale was wonderful. Um, but ever since I can remember, I wanted to be a doctor. And I... I am a Christian. I'm a religious person. I believe that it was a very God-given kind of initiative in my life because despite my best efforts throughout my entire growing up, I couldn't kick it. Like I really, at a certain point, I really tried. I'm like, no, 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 no. That sounds too hard. Like I probably don't want to do this with my life, right? Right? No, you don't want to do this. And I kept coming back around to just a, a love of medicine and a love of the idea of being able to help people in that way, specifically a, a physical distress kind of a way. And through probably a, a healthy amount of naivete, um, found myself, you know, applying to medical school and then in medical school suddenly realizing, oh, this is so much more in all the good ways and all the bad ways than I ever imagined it would be. So realizing that medicine is more than just the physicality, but it's taking care of the mental, emotional, um, and sometimes often spiritual well-being of other human beings, realizing that medicine is extremely broken. And what is my role to play in that broken system in order to try to help it? Um, Realizing that it's really hard. (laughs) Medicine is really hard. Um, And what are the things that I need to do in order to stay healthy, in order to continue to be able to help other people? I feel like I was probably, I, I, in fact, I know I was one of those stereotypical undergrad students who on your med school interviews, well, why do you want to be a doctor? I want to help people. And that is still a hundred percent true, but there is so much more to that answer than I ever realized going into medicine. Say more about the spiritual piece because that really um, that really touched my heart. I think, well, first of all, I, I identified so much with what you said and how you grew up in just wanting, just just boom, it was in you and you tried to shake it and you couldn't. You're like, okay, fine, this is what I'm doing, and so you're you're here, which literally, like I say, I feel like that's my same path in a multitude of ways. But the spiritual piece, I think especially in emergency medicine is not talked about. Um, I'm sure you have maybe a similar story, but there's been so many times that of course we've given bad news or I've given bad news and I'm watching people like grapple with it. And I'm like, I want to do more. And so I'm like, do you want to, are you a spiritual person? Do you want to pray? Can I pray with you? Mm -hmm. And I'll just pray. And that's not something I think a lot of times people will expect, but I know that's mm-hmm. what a lot of people need. And there's so many, if you're 
of this mindset of, you know, ministry and really service. Like, mm-hmm. I feel like that's really an opportunity or opportunities where we can take as doctors to really remember the humanity. So say more about like, from your perspective, how you feel like you've been a healer of people like in the, on the spiritual sense. I, I love and appreciate that the conversation's going this way because I agree with you. We don't talk about this enough. It, it's almost as if as within our identity as scientists, right? That we kind of decide to shove aside our own spirituality and put the spirituality of our patients, you know, lower down on the importance totem pole when it's not. Like we are, as human beings, we are whole human beings and we are multifaceted. And to treat somebody's chest pain without acknowledging their anxiety is just as bad as, you know, treating somebody's broken toe without acknowledging their diabetes. Like, they're one and the same. So to to answer your first question, um, I I feel very lucky and very blessed to be an individual who feels like they've had a calling on their life. I, I feel as if I have a very specific um, calling to service placed on my life. And I have found my pathway of service within the house of medicine. Um, and so that is what I was designed for in the sense that I have skills and abilities that allow me to be able to do that job in order to minister and serve others in that way. So for me, that is the deeper nature of what I feel being a doctor is in terms of like a calling on my life is that I have been equipped in order to be able to do that job. In terms of how do how do I connect on that way with my patients? I, again, I agree with you. Like we, we don't do a good enough job of this. And I was very, very, again, lucky, blessed to be able to do my medical training at Loma Linda University, which is a Christian university. It's a, it's a university based um, from the Seventh-day Adventist church. Okay. And a whole portion of my medical training addressed the fact that humans have spirituality, that we needed to be able to connect with our patients on that level. The motto of the university is to make man whole, to continue the teaching and healing ministry of Jesus Christ. And so I was extremely blessed to be able to see spiritual care incorporated into more traditional medical care. Jeez, right right from my first week of medical school, I remember we we were put on the ward, so into the hospital, first week of medical school to do shadowing, kind of kind of like a dual factor thing, right? Like to scare the crap out of you so that you studied hard, um, but also to give you like a glimpse, just a tiny, tiny little glimpse behind the curtain of what it what you, this journey was that you were starting. And one of my attendings that I was shadowing at the time, who later, she's now the Dean of the School of Medicine, Dr. Tammy Thomas. She's an incredible mentor of mine and wonderful human being. As a brand new baby first year medical student, I was shadowing her and I watched her pray with a patient and it blew my freaking mind because I had just never in my, again, you know, naive lexicon of what a doctor should be ever imagined that that was possible. And nowadays I work with many of my colleagues who are true spiritual ministry giants. They do an absolutely exemplary role of incorporating that into their daily patient care, offering simple prayer, just like you said, 
this is a tough conversation. Can I pray with you? Um, I know that this is some really bad news. Is there anybody that we can call? Would you like to have a chaplain here? Can we get your church family, your minister, your pastor, um, whoever that spiritual figure in your life might be here with you to help support you in this? I personally um, probably take a more middling ground on how much I work it into my daily practice. Um, for me, a lot of that spiritual journey is very personal to me. I believe in my calling and my ability to reach and help my people through the grace and the power um, of God. And yet I am constantly listening for that little internal voice that says, no, 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 the situation's a little bit different. Mm -hmm. you, you can't fix this situation. You yes. need somebody and something bigger than you to be able to fix the situation. And so I have many times offered prayer for my patients. Um, there have been many times when I walked back to the workroom and I just bowed my head for a second and I said, the system is broken and I can't fix it. And this is wrong, but I can't fix it. And I don't know what to do. So I'm giving it up yeah. because there's nothing else that me and my power can do. And sometimes in those moments, solutions arise. Um, sometimes, you know, you'll have a thought or somebody will suggest something and you know that that came from outside of yourself. Sometimes there's nothing immediately, but we have to have faith and trust that even if there's no immediate evidence of things unseen that there is still working that there is still something above us to provide the care and the comfort and the peace that we as human as faulty human beings can i know you're not a minister but where can i offer <laughs> plate <laughs> no this oh okay so great example going into this conversation i did not know that this is what i needed today and i needed this conversation today so thank you for being the minister in my life to lead us down this conversational pathway because i needed this i, I, I there's so many different ways you're you're welcome but thank you thank you god thank you universe whoever is listening we believe that i believe it's god but mm -hmm. i I hear you because once you said, you know, there's, there's times it's like, Lord, I don't know what's going on, but I give it to you. I, I, I have, I just remember in residency, a lot of times, even before I would get out of my car, I would just say, Lord, use me. Like, I, I, I don't know. Like I am your vessel. Like I am just here to do the work, like just use me. Um, but also just acknowledging God before I even go into the hospital. Um, I, I reckon I, I acknowledge with so many different things, like is even the first time I saw someone pass away as a medical student, like how that mm -hmm. took me spiritually, like just to watch something like that, just, but also still to just, like you said, acknowledge that there's God, there's a higher power and we're just vessels for his use and I tell patients that too like I I don't have the answers this is what the numbers say this is what I'm, I'm I've learned but I don't have the ultimate decision up to me I, I I am not the the final person it's it's up to God ultimately and telling people you know in order to comfort them that I believe in God hopefully they believe in God and using that spirituality to kind of get them through the situation, no matter what it is too. So to know that you do the same, almost to hear that someone out there <laughs> approaches things similar ways. And of course, it's not always like this. Like, I'm not always like, oh, hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Like, 
Just, I still know. curse in the workroom. I still complain <laughs> about the frequent flyer. It's like, I am, I am not a paragon of virtue. Um, but it's, it's defining your core. It's defining your foundation. It's defining the irrefutable truth that you fall back on when you are looking at a parking lot full of patients who might have COVID and realizing that you have five tests, five COVID tests for 24 hours, and none of these people will get an answer today, and there is nothing you can do about it. And having something to fall back on, realizing that it is bigger than you. It has to be bigger than me because if I'm the biggest thing, whole world, like you, you are sorely let down. <laughs> that is so true. That is so true. Well, speaking of a parking lot full of patients that need COVID tests, that, that brings me to what brought you to emergency medicine? <laughs> how do we, how do you get into this chaotic world of the ER and what made you want to, I guess, continue to party in is because you've been... <laughs> And now it's academia, so. Right? Um, okay, well, I, I'm with much chagrin, I admit. So I, I was that, you know, student going into medical school who's like, oh, I'm a girl and I like kids. I must want to be a pediatrician. Like so many stereotypes, like don't even get me wrong. Um, and, but again, you know, I, I'd, I'd had kind of limited exposure to medicine prior to signing my life away to this thing. So I had a, a couple of early like shadow experiences. So I mentioned, you know, shadowing Dr. Thomas. Um, she was an she's an emergency physician. And so that was in the emergency room. I have this one very vivid memory of like my second or third day that first week. And we had this patient in one of our recess bays who was totally out of his mind on meth. And he's trying to crawl out of bed and they're just yelling, we need more hands in there. And I'm like, well, I have two hands. <laughs> and so I ran into the world or into the room and I guess I ran into the world too, um, but I ran into the room and I'm holding down his right knee and the nurse who's holding down his left knee who apparently, you know, has been doing, and he's been an ER nurse for like 20 years. He looks me dead in the eye over the patient's like, welcome to the emergency room. <laughs> that, that was, that's my first memory of being like, oh man, what is this? And how do I do this more? Anyways, so I started my uh, third year clinical rotations, uh, really trying to convince myself that I didn't want to do emergency medicine just because I didn't want to be one of those kids who like prematurely closed on their specialty. I really wanted to just kind of experience it all and see where I fit. And so I, I loved surgery. I truly loved surgery. In fact, after doing my surgical rotation, I really thought I wanted to be a trauma surgeon for like, oh, three, four months. I know. And, and most people who have worked with me, they're like, oh, oh, I, I can see that. And I'm like, yeah, no, I think I, I think I would have made a great surgeon. And after a lot of soul searching, I realized, you know, I don't think that I've got the temperament to do the exact same surgery 250 times just to make sure that I can account for every single variation because that patient's life is in my hands in that way. Yeah. It just... I, I have so much admiration for surgeons. Um, I decided that that probably wasn't the best fit for my personal personality um, and kind of the way that I operate, all puns fully intended. Um, I loved OB-GYN for kind of some of the same like surgical procedural reasons, but I didn't want to cut out, you know, half of the human population in my practice. And I loved pediatrics. I really did. But well, child checks, bleh, like, come on, just you know, stab me, stab me in the heart. Um, 
anyways. And so I got to the end of the year and like, well, I liked everything, but not enough to do anything. So I guess I'm going to do the one thing that lets me do everything without doing anything. Um, and came, came back around to the emergency medicine. And I have found such extreme fulfillment in this specialty in the constant challenge of trying to take care of random, random problems. I, I swear one of these days I'm going to make bumper stickers, you know, humanity, stupidity is my job security. Um, uh, that ne right here, you heard it here first. Uh, that's trademarked by Molly Estes. Because <laughs> I want a bumper sticker right now because people ask me, what do you do? And I don't want to tell them all the time I'm an ER doctor. But mm -hmm. I also tell people that I fight Darwinism sometimes. Nice. <laughs> um, and so that, that takes a level of a thinker to really understand what I'm trying to say. <laughs> um, but I want, what did you say? Humanity? Humanity's stupidity is my job security. Yeah, that needs to be Jedi and <laughs> women. Okay, but it also needs to go right up there with like you know ER doc by day, Darwin fighter by night. Like, <laughs> okay, we're coming up with all kinds of marketing and sales things right now. <laughs> oh my god, I love it! Totally love it. I mean, it's true though, like people, people are constantly inventing new ways of hurting themselves. Um, you are constantly presented with new symptoms that should not go with that diagnosis, but surprise, um, you know, patients don't read the textbooks before they walk in. Um, we have this incredible humbling honor and privilege of being able to meet with people on what is likely the worst day of their life. And even if we're not able to give them a clean answer, at least provide them reassurance which is just fathomless to try to, to try to wrap your brain around. Um, we are, we will never be the smartest person in the room in terms of every single specialty. So humility is a huge part of the job. Um, being able to admit when you've done wrong um, and then adjust after that is a huge part of the job and being able to advocate for ourselves because, you know, I might not be the smartest cardiologist out there, but I sure as heck know emergency medicine, cardiology, forwards and backwards and upside down. Thank you, Amalma, too, um, because that's the only way that I know anything about cardiology. Um, but we, we take such extreme pride in what we do, and we should, at the exact same time, we hold in tandem ultimate humility in what we do not know, cannot know, cannot do for our patients, which is just this absolutely unique place to fill in in medical care that places us so as some of the most human doctors I think out there I think that we really amongst many of the specialties are in the top just plain human doctors that are out there yes I tell people that all the time I said in the house of medicine I don't say it as eloquently and beautifully as you just did um, let me be clear but in the house of medicine I say we're the cool kids because like you said, we have to be able to go from one room where someone is, let's say a 45 year old housewife that may be having, you know, acute cholecystitis and then go to the next room where we're treating a homeless patient and then go to another room where we maybe have someone that's undocumented and we have to treat them all in the same way and be able to get them to trust us, trust that we can be that person for them in a split second. And 
that is something that is a very unique trait that a lot of people don't get a chance a lot not a lot of people but a lot of specialties don't get a chance to have everybody else seems to have more time mm-hmm. um, especially like if your family or internal medicine or you know OBGYN even you get the chance to have and build that relationship over time and they get to pick you they also mm-hmm. get to pick you we don't we don't get picked <laughs> <We're> <laughs> come to your hospital just to see Dr. Molly Estes about their broken toe today like they no in fact we we screen out those patients like if somebody comes in asking for me they are not allowed to see me exactly. so yeah, it's the exact opposite <laughs> exactly exactly so that lends us to being like you said, just human, because we have to deal with humanity every day. That is literally our job to deal with people's F ups, um, Mm -hmm. accidents, mistakes, um, you know, what have you, whatever brings that person to the day, we're there to to fix it for them or try to help. Absolutely. And I, I tell my students all the time, I'm like, look, my job is not possible without all the other specialties out there. Like it is, I, I have such deep, 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 deep respect for the multi-layered nature of our system because it's really easy for me to say, hey, you're not having a heart attack. Go out into the universe, you know, go and be free, catch and release, right? But that has not, my patient still has questions and my patient still has issues. And then I, and I'm so grateful for the system that's behind me that allows so many other physicians to come in then in that situation and fill that gap for my patients needs to be able to continue their care. Um, and what you said about trust, oh my God, yes, like 120%. I mean, nobody, the, the days of people just trusting you because you were a doctor are behind us. I still find that every once in a while, but patient population is more suspicious than that these days. Um, and don't even get me started off of all the like medical gaslighting conversations. I take such offense to that perceived notion out there, but it's a fact, right? And so being able to walk into a room and connect with another human being enough to get them to actually trust that you're telling them the truth and to do what you're saying. Oh my God. I don't, I, in that regards, I don't know how primary care does it when they've got a patient docket of 40 patients are trying to get through in eight hours and trying to do all the primary care things. Right. Cannot comprehend. Right. Um, but yeah, the, the, the anyone, anytime, any place, regardless of the ability to pay, man, that resonates with me. I, I have a whole, this is what emergency medicine is spiel and lecture that I give like the first year students, like based off of that alone. It is, that is the mission. I love that. So that being said, what brought you to AAM? Because like I said, at the beginning, I feel like you have been in AAM since I know I've been in it. And of course you're You've been in, you've been a physician longer than I have. So what? Not by much longer, actually. Yeah. I said not by much longer. Um, So my residency class was 2016. Oh. Oh, yeah. Hey, I thought, you know, because you've been so involved for so long. So that's why I feel like. It's so funny because I, yes, I I got involved very early because I was essentially voluntold into a position. Um, I I would love to give you this like amazing backstory of like, I discovered AAEM and the mission and what it stood for. And I got involved. No, I I, I did the young doctor thing and I got voluntold into something and then uh, discovered what I had been voluntold into. Um, So 
when I was when I was doing my fellowships, I did fellowship in medical education. Um, the uh, person who was the immediate past med ed fellow um, in my program, so Jeff Chien, he volunteered me into getting involved in YPS. Um, so he was leadership in YPS at the time. He said, "Hey, I, I'm moving on, um, but you should. But we need a secretary, and you should do it." I was like, okay, <laughs> that, that was basically the, the gist of the conversation was me being like, okay, cool. I'm very good at doing what I'm told. Okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do. And, and I got involved in YPS um, and was part of the young physician section leadership um, for a few years. And through doing YPS, started to get um, a little bit more exposure um, to the college, started uh, to the academy to started um, doing like a little poster presentation for the interesting photo thing ended up uh, over the course of my uh, fellowship year doing the open mic competition uh, did a we we had two we had two winners that year myself and Dr. Mate Husenfeldt which if you've heard any of her cardiology lectures oh my god she's amazing she is absolutely incredible an incredible teacher say her name one more time um, Mate Husenfeld. Okay, and can we find her lectures like on the AEM? So um, you can go onto AEM Online, which is AEM's uh, learning management platform. You can find her lectures as well as many other recorded lectures from past scientific assemblies and other events. Check it out. It's a great way to get CME and to round out your uh, asynchronous learning. Yes, shameless plug for the Academy. Shameless plug for the Academy. Um, you're welcome, Jason. I just, he's, he's running on the uh, learning management uh, committee right now. So, <laughs> um, so through that ended up getting a speaking position um, at Scientific Assembly. That's how I really got started on giving lectures was through that experience, um, which was an incredible experience. Even doing the open mic, it was um, Matt uh, Zuckerman and uh, Marianne Howie, who are two of my judges, they gave me like the best feedback on my presentation I have ever received in my life. Like it was incredible. Um, and then met Lois, met Lois Swisher, um, and through her got involved in the women in the emergency medicine section. And now I've been involved in that. I'm the incoming um, chair elect for women in EM for next year. Yeah, so that's exciting. And through um, another connection, um, so Chris Colbert, he, he and I started getting involved in scientific assembly through a very roundabout series of events um, in the middle of COVID. So when we were still doing, you know, Zoom conferences at that time. Yeah. And then ended up being chosen to do the uh, co-chairing for Scientific Assembly for this last year, as well as this upcoming year. So plug for Austin, plug for Austin for next year. Come on out to Scientific Assembly. It's going to be a blast because we are having a ton of fun with it. And we get to work with the most amazing collection of people to try to create educational content for our members it is such an incredible challenge um, and so much fun to put together. Um, just an incredible learning experience. Well, I'm excited. I'm excited for Austin and you, the women in, e, in EM section has a special place in my heart for a multitude of reasons. One, because of Lois Swisher. <laughs> Two, oh, yeah. The woman is a powerhouse. Like she could single-handedly 
it's really AEM is how many degrees of connection of Lois Swisher, right? Like it, that's really what it is. <laughs> that's completely true. 1000% true because everybody knows, I tell her, you're like, you're like everybody's grandmother. You're like everyone's mother. And I, I say that, that, that women in EM has a special place in my heart, but also too, because they were very instrumental in helping us as Jedi get off the ground as a section as well. Um, and now stand on our own. We were just a committee, an interest group, then a committee, and now a section. So we've kind of grown up um, in the academy in the last few years. But a lot of it has been with the support of, like I said, Lois Swisher and the women in EM section. And so I always make it a point to come to the luncheon. <clears throat> Thank you. Yeah, because it's always a good time and it's always fun. But to, to kind of watch... Um, in history, like I said, kind of the history of our organization come and just really want to acknowledge that that Jedi has been strongly supported by that. And so I love when we're able to kind of just play off of each other and just support each other as sections and all the other sections as well too, don't get me wrong. Um, but those two have a special place in my heart um, as well. Mm -hmm. So one last question, because I know we got to wrap up soon, but you've been no, in, like I said, enjoyed. we need to just do this on the side and just like chat and hang out and talk life philosophy at one point okay we need to we need to um because sometimes I just have to wait to see some of my friends at a scientific assembly there has to be some other ways that we get together so yes mm -hmm. we're off session but um you you shared a little bit about it but maybe say more what keeps you active in AAM the dedication to meeting the needs of the membership. If I could, if I could sum it up in one kind of universal thought, it would be that. Um, and at, as my involvement suggests, I, I am very academic. I'm very medical education. I am the super nerd of emergency medicine. Well, Toxicologists might be more nerdy than me. Deep respect for toxicologists because they are hella smarter than me. Um, but I am like the education nerd uh, of an ER doc. And so everything that I've done has always been education-based. Like even my YPS um, leadership, I was, I was in charge of the education programming. Um, in women in EM, I was in charge of the education initiatives and the and the that's how I got involved in the women in emergency medicine, um, our journey podcast, you know, like all these things have always been education. And I have always been so deeply, deeply impressed by the Academy's dedication to meeting the needs of the membership in all ways, but in specifically their dedication to just providing good foundational connection, education for everyone. It is, it is not the routine lecture that you've seen given 13 million other times. It is not the cutting edge that, well, you don't understand my department doesn't have any of the medications you just listed to treat that particular condition. It is a little bit of the former and a little bit of the latter, but the 70% of the middle is just, how do we all be good doctors? How do we be good doctors? How do we do what's best for our patient? How do we try to operate within the greater medical system in order to be good doctors and do what's best for our patients? And the Academy's continual drive and continual search to support its membership in any way that might be needed or necessary, that's what I love about it. I love that mission. 
I thought this was going to be my last question, but I guess it's not. So that being said, if someone out there is listening, that's an emergency physician and they're not a member of AEM, why should they join? So I would probably give the slightly like non-PC answer, which is if you're not a member, you don't have to be a member of AAEM, like be a member of some kind of organization because you can't be an island and you need to have ties to somebody. And so get involved with any organization and be part of the bigger house of emergency medicine because we're getting too siloed off into all of our individual niches and we, and we need to come back together as one house of emergency medicine. Um, that being said, I would say get involved with AEM because they are dedicated to the physician. Um, not that other organizations out there aren't, but AEM has always been dedicated to the physician. And so the connections that you're going to get, the resources that you are going to get are all, all have that underlying it. And so get involved because we want you, not we, we, we don't want your money. We don't want your dues. We want you. Um, and so become a part of our family. That's perfect. That is so amazing. Um, well, what else do you want to share before we, we say ta-ta for now? There's been a lot of talk and there's ongoing talk about how much emergency medicine is changing. And, th and this, come, this, this statement and this thought comes from my role um, in, in student teaching and like through some of the roles that I have through court and like just medical education and emergency medicine in general. But there's been a lot of talk out there about how the, the specialty is crumbling. Look at the burnout rates. Look at how many people are going to part-time. Look at how nobody wants to apply to emergency medicine anymore. Look at this, look at that, look at whatever. And to everybody out there who's listening, I just really want to say no to all of that. We, we are strong. We, we uh, as a specialty have always been dedicated to one thing first and foremost, and that is serving our patients. And that has never changed. Pre-COVID, that was our mission. Throughout COVID, that was our mission. Now in a, I hesitate to say it because I'm just, I've got a little PTSD, you know, post-COVID situation, that is still our mission. As long as there are patients out there who need help, we will be there. We will be there serving them. We will be there to answer their questions. We will be there to listen. We will be there to do whatever we can to try to help. And that is the essence of emergency medicine. And that has never gone anywhere. And that will never change. Are we struggling in a lot of ways? Yeah, we are. But that should not be the indicator to throw in the towel. That should be the drive for us to come back together as a specialty, to come back together as one house of emergency medicine, to support each other and to redefine how we do our jobs because the mission hasn't changed, but many of the day-to-day -day details are in flux. And so this is, this, we should see this as an exciting time. This is a time to reinvent ourselves. This is a time to reorient ourselves. This is a time to renew our pledge to humanity. But emergency medicine's not dying. We're not going anywhere. We are strong and we are here. Dr. Molly Estes, this was the conversation that I did not know that I was going to have today, but this was the best way for me to start my day. Thank you for your time. Thank you for the opportunity. I, 
I really needed this conversation too. And hopefully somebody out there listening needed it as well. So thank you for the opportunity. Thank you. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast from the American Academy of Emergency Medicine. AAEM is a nonprofit professional association of over 8,000 emergency physicians dedicated to board certification and democratic group practice. For more information about AAEM, visit our website at www.aaem.org. Find all episodes of this podcast and our other podcast series on the AAEM website.